the Lord is my, and what would you say? Who is the Lord to you, I guess is what I'm asking, or maybe a different way to say it is, what is the Lord to you? How would you complete that sentence, the Lord is my? Well, there's a lot of ways we could complete that. You might think the Lord is my rock, the Lord is my fortress, a number of ways the Bible refers to it. But today we want to look at the Lord is my shepherd from Psalm 23 and help ourselves understand that a little bit more. The good news is we have a good handle on Psalm 23, those of us who are familiar with it. The other good news is there's more than we ever imagined there. And we want to explore that more today on Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we challenge each other and stretch each other to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because we've decided, we've called it for the sake of our conversations here, that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I want to help you have more confidence in Him day by day. I think I want to help myself have more confidence. And hopefully we are then stretching each other in God's direction. As I said, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a real church with real people. And I give a shout out to them and with of appreciation for their support of these efforts that we make every week. We make this program to help you. And we hope it does. We hope it encourages you. We hope it points you in God's direction. We hope, yes, absolutely. We hope it stretches your thinking. It moves you a little bit in the right direction. And the right direction is always towards God and in his direction. So thanks for joining us. It's an honor that you would spend some time with us. And I want us to, to think carefully about some things and maybe in some new ways about this great psalm, Psalm 23. Let's start by reminding ourselves there's a couple of things that we know. First of all, one of the things that we know is that friendship in ancient times was thought of differently than we think of friendship today. In ancient times, it wasn't so much about being friendly. Uh, it's okay to be friendly, but that isn't what they thought about. We think of friendship as being friendly, being friendly to everybody, to being a likable person, and I hope you are a likable person. We want to have those kinds of friendship connections. But in ancient times, when they talked about having someone as their friend or being a friend, it was more about being reliable than it was about being friendly. I don't know that they didn't think about being friendly, but they were really concerned about being reliable. It was the kind of thing that, that friends could count on each other. And they, they knew that if they needed something, they could go to their friend and they could count on their friend to help. They didn't have much else by way of resources. They couldn't just go down to the store and buy something they needed. They couldn't just go out and obtain whatever it was they might needed, but um, they needed friends that could be reliable. And that makes all the difference. We need friends that can be reliable too, but we don't think about them in quite the same way. We think about it more of uh, friendship, camaraderie, socializing, those kinds of things. And we might have what we call friends at work, where we get along with people that we work with or business associates and, and that's good, but we may not have those same kind of friendships when we're out doing our socializing. We may have a whole different um, view of things. So we have, to, we have to kind of keep in mind 
that, um, well, friendship means different things in our context because we just describe it differently. In their context, and we talk about friendship in the Bible times, it was much more of a bond between people, uh, a reliable connection, a, a uh, person that you can count on and they could count on you. And, and there was this reciprocal dependency, we could say. It's often described that way as reciprocal dependency. You see, when, when we have friendships, we think of, I help you, you help me. It's a little bit like a transaction. You know, we're, we're happy to return the favor, we'll sometimes say. Well, they didn't think of it as a one-on-one -on -one situation like that, where I give you something and you give me something. They thought of it more as we support we because they were all intertwined in supporting each other. And so there was a real sense of this reciprocity, this, this um, reciprocal dependency. And so they were, they were connected that way. And the more connections they had, the better. It was a kind of security for them. For us, it's more of a kindness that we share with one another. For them, it was definitely something they had to have. And, and those kinds of relationships really made their world go around and was the glue that kept things moving like it should. So always remember their friendships were different than our friendships. Doesn't mean we're wrong to think of friendship the way we do. It doesn't mean they're right. It just means they were different. So they had this very, very strong sense of reciprocal dependency. The we help we, we give to we. And that was a bond that kept them connected. Now, included in this was also the idea, none of this is like separate. You don't talk about one concept in isolation from another. They are overlapping, of course. So the other way they talked about things was the idea of patronage. And so there would be these patron-client relationships, the patron being the greater personage in the relationship and the client being the one who needed the help of the patron. So if you needed help from someone who could provide it, you went to them and you asked their help and they might become your patron and you would become their client. And they helped you with something that you needed. But if they needed something that you could provide, you were quick to provide that back and you were not reluctant to do that. You viewed that as a way to strengthen the bond. And you were always glad when they needed your help because you were now further connected. So when we think of this idea of friendship and the connections, there's a real strength of relationship here between friends, between patrons and clients. It was, it was a whole different level of idea than what we tend to think about. And I want us to think about the 23rd Psalm through that lens. As I was looking at the 23rd Psalm this week, I, I was struck by two things. Well, more than two, but two big kind of things. One was wow, we really do understand what the psalm is talking about. There's not a lot of uh, new ground to explore. Well, I guess there always is in some sense with the Bible, but in a very real sense, we have a good grasp of what Psalm 23 is all about. Most of us who are familiar with it and who, who learned it, some of us memorized it when we were kids. I remember memorizing it for vacation Bible school. We had to go into the pastor and recite the 23rd Psalm, and I'm not sure I did it very well, but I passed and got whatever reward was advertised for that. So the 23rd Psalm has a lot of history with us. I use it regularly when I conduct memorial services or funeral services because it communicates some things that I want people to, 
to take home with them at the conclusion of those services. I don't do it because it's just there. I do it because it's there and it helps. It's very significant for us. So I want us to take a look at Psalm 23, and I want us to look in terms of the, the friendship, but also think of it as a patron-client relationship, because what is going on here is the psalmist is describing the Lord in terms of the Lord being his patron. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd, he's really saying the Lord is my patron, because related to the friendship patronage idea from ancient times was the idea of shepherding, and the people who had responsibility for other people were expected to shepherd them and do good by them to help them have a better life, to make sure they, they were thriving. That was the responsibility. The shepherd idea, really, we connect the shepherd idea with sheep, and it's really just meant to be imagery, poetic imagery, to give us a beginning idea. But the shepherding thing went far, far deeper than simply comparisons to a flock of sheep. So let me read from Psalm 23. I'm going to read from the New King James Version because it's very similar to the King James that a lot of us learned. It just updates a few of the words and seems to make it clearer for us in our day. But the psalmist writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, a lot of that psalm you probably recognize. You may remember, depending upon some of the things that the psalmist says and, and um, rejoicing that God is what the psalmist describes. And I think that's one of the reasons the psalm is so beloved by so many people is because we understand what it's talking about, and we can take courage from what it says, and we can build our confidence in God from what it says. We can develop faith absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So let's go through it a little bit and remember a few ideas, and maybe I can give you a few refreshed ideas from the things that I worked on this week. I always try to take these even familiar verses of Scripture and do a fresh eyes look at them because I don't want to miss something. I want to give God every opportunity to help us understand what it is he's saying. So the Lord is my shepherd, or he could say the Lord is my patron, and that's the shepherd's responsibility to, to watch out for my well-being. And because he is my patron, I shall not want. So in other words, the psalmist is saying, I have this great shepherd, this great patron, and the patron takes care of the things so that I don't find myself lacking anything. I find myself fully satisfied. And then he goes on to begin to explain what that means. And he uses the shepherding and the sheep imagery. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Well, sheep need green pastures. Sheep need still waters. Sheep cannot, will not drink from turbulent waters. They need a, a calm place where they can get to the water and be refreshed. And so the psalmist is saying that God provides just what I need in the same way a shepherd provides just what sheep need, because he's my great patron. He's my great good shepherd, and he makes sure that I have what I need for my life 
to thrive. Verse three goes on, then he says, he restores my soul. And I have long liked that statement. He restores my soul. And one of the reasons I think I really like it these days is because it seems to me a lot of people, a lot of people need their souls restored. For one reason or another, and I'm not throwing stones or going to try to identify all the reasons and say that you shouldn't be that way. I'm simply saying that life has a tendency to beat people down. And these days, it seems to me one of the things that we need is we need what the psalmist talks about here, the good shepherd to restore our souls. He restores my soul. So I was looking at that and I like that imagery, but it's even more than that. I came to find out that when you look at the the original language and the people that study this tell us that that it's really not so much about soul as much as that the Lord restores our life breath or our very life. One person says that the, the idea behind this is that he brings me back to life. And I, I thought, wow, that's really helpful. He brings me back to life because that's kind of what I think of when I think of he restores my soul. When, when life beats us down, when life is kind of hard for us, when, uh, when we have to pick ourselves up repeatedly and we kind of wonder how it's going to be, then uh, it's kind of important that someone comes along and breathes new life into us. And here the psalmist is talking about that very thing. Another person that I was reading described this as divine CPR. So that the Lord, it's more than just maybe what we think in terms of restoring our souls. It's actually bringing us back to life. And if you've been through some difficult times, you know how important that is. God can bring you back to life, can bring you back to the place that, that you maybe once found yourself, but for some reason you find yourself a long way from that that vibrant life. And now it's the time to get back to that. He restores my soul. He goes on to say, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. So when God leads us, he leads us in the right direction. He doesn't lead us into the wrong direction. He leads us in the right direction because he wants us to, to go in the right way because we represent him. And he does it so that we, by our actions, will be a good representation of him because it says he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He wants us to represent his name really well. Goes on in verse four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And these are very popular, popular uh, expressions and ideas, very popular verse from, from Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the most difficult parts of life, life that deals with death, and even though death is my feared enemy, I will fear no evil. One person says it's, it's the equivalent to saying, I will fear no harm because I have a good shepherd and he's with me. Because it says here, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Now, what about the good shepherd gives me confidence to not be afraid of evil? Well, shepherds carried two important tools with them, one a rod and one a staff. The rod was often used as a corrective to, um, to, to the sheep if they got out of line, but it was even more used as a tool to protect the sheep from an enemy, a, a dangerous animal that might come in to do them harm. 
They could use that rod, the shepherd could, to make sure that their sheep were protected. And the staff they would use as a guiding tool. So if the sheep started to go one way and the shepherd knew they needed to go another, they could use the staff to, to guide them. And so the comfort for the psalmist here is to say that the rod of the shepherd will protect me from evil. I don't need to fear evil. And the staff will keep me on the right way because the staff will guide me in the way I should go. And, you know, this is another of the couple of things that really get my attention these days, this idea of I will fear no evil. We have lived through a time when people have been absolutely terrified of absolutely too many things. And we need to get back to Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even if death itself threatens me, I will fear no evil because the good shepherd is with me. Now, I want, I want to think carefully about that. It's not that any of us minimizes death. Not me. I don't like it at all. Not you if you don't like it at all. But what we have to realize is the good shepherd has overcome death. And we see are even more fortunate than the psalmist because we see it through resurrection eyes. And have I said today, resurrection never ends. So for the one who defeated our worst enemy, death, death is not a problem for him. Death is not a problem for the good shepherd. I will fear no evil because even if I walk through the threat of death or even if I die, I will fear no evil because the good shepherd has overcome all of that. And I put my confidence, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of the good shepherd. I will fear no evil. A huge statement that the psalmist makes and one that we need to, to reaffirm in our time because we need to, to count on him for that kind of reassurance, that kind of stability. We might think of it as emotional stability so that fear doesn't catch up on us. That, uh, that's really significant. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And see here, the psalmist is continuing to, I guess we could say, brag on this idea that he has a great patron, the good shepherd. He's talking about what a wonderful thing it is because his patron, the good shepherd, the Lord, who is my shepherd, provides him with things. Now, these are a little bit unusual things here we look at, and, and it talks about anointing our heads with oil. The table, we understand because that's about food, and we do understand food very well. Some of us understand it better than others, if you know what I mean. But anyway, we do understand food, and my cup runs over. We have a little bit of an idea that we can we can clarify that a little bit more. But this idea of anointing my head with oil is a little unusual, so we should talk a little bit about that. In, in another psalm, there's a reference to the oil of joy or the oil of gladness. So there is that imagery that the Bible gives us. At another place in Luke chapter 7, there's a discussion about how someone failed in their hospitality because they did not provide oil for their guests to, to anoint themselves with. And so we get this idea that something's going on here with oil. Now, when it says anoint my head with oil, that the idea of anointing makes us think that it's a, uh, how should I say, some kind of anointing that implies royal status, like a king would have been anointed. Well, that's not what's going on here. It's a different sense of that. It's the sense that this is a refreshment. 
and oil was used as refreshment. And, and I've, I found this very, very significant when I was thinking about this in terms of the patron client thing. If I'm saying to the Lord, you're my shepherd, and here's, here's how I'm bragging on you and giving thanks for you. You prepare a table before me, you anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. And those were three keys to a happy life in, in ancient times. First of all, food, a feast. The, the patron prepares food for me. And even though my enemies are there, they see that I'm being well cared for because I have plenty to eat. Now, you and I, we don't think about typically that we might not have plenty to eat, although that happens in some places in the world, some kinds happens in devastating ways. And it's tragic that people don't have enough to eat. But here, a good life is characterized and the patron is honored, the patron shepherd is honored because that patron prepares a table for me. He goes on to say that not only do I have this feast of food, but you anoint my head with oil. Now what that's about? Well, this idea of anointing with oil was, was characteristic of this time, partly because they lived in a dry climate and the oil could be useful for, for someone's skin, but it was also a refreshment that, that and, and you were well cared for in, in that personal sense when you had a well-oiled head of hair, that, that you had olive oil that you could anoint yourself with. And it was, it was a refreshing thing for you to have that after too many hours maybe in the sun or in a dry climate, and that would tend to be restorative to your skin. So the happy life was characterized by this food, the feast, by the well-oiled head of hair. And finally, my cup overflows. That means that your cup of wine was more than sufficient. You had plenty to drink because it overflowed. There was lots of it to, to enjoy. It was a cool, refreshing drink. So this description here is, is really bragging big time on the patron shepherd about what he provides for this person who is, who is giving gratitude and responding to the benefit of having this good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is looking after me in ways that I couldn't look after myself. He's helping me in ways that I can't begin to imagine. And so I want to give him thanks because of all that he has done and provided for me. He truly is a good shepherd. So that brings us then to the final concept. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the surely goodness and mercy is a, is a really descriptive kind of phrase. And, and essentially what the psalmist is saying is that God is going to pursue me with goodness and in the New King James Version, mercy. Some, some translations use the word faithfulness. So God, God wants me in his household so much that he wants me there that he's going to pursue and chase after me. He desires our goodness and our faithfulness so very much that he pursues us. Now, some of us think, well, we have a hard enough time pursuing goodness and mercy on our own. Yes, but flip that around in this and think about the way the psalmist says it. Think about it that God is at work pursuing goodness and faithfulness, goodness and mercy for you. 
he wants it so much for you that he is chasing you down. The idea of pursuit here is the way someone would chase down an enemy. Only God is not your enemy. God is your friend. He's your patron. And he wants this so much for you that he's going to help you with goodness, mercy, or faithfulness. So does that mean? Yes, it means that God is going to help us have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness. He wants to chase us down, and he wants us to have that. That's why he works so hard to provide it for us. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So God is going to pursue us with that goodness and mercy, and he's not going to stop, and it's going to happen all the days of our life. That's, that's pretty good news, wouldn't you say? And then he concludes with the famous conclusion from this, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I have always thought of this, and I don't think it's doing any violence to the psalm, although there's a little bit more to it than this. I've always thought of this as a great promise or a great affirmation that one day we will all be with the Lord and dwell with him forever. That's a long time. That means eternity. We often use the, the expression eternity, that we'll be with God throughout eternity, time without end. Well, it's interesting that we think that, and, and yet the psalm has no sense of that forever concept. It doesn't think of it in terms of, of, of an eternal perspective. Now, part of that is the language that the psalm used, and part of that's probably because they didn't have the well-understood sense that we do because we have the benefits of, of the New Testament, of, of the burial resurrection of Jesus. So we have that sense that there is eternity in view of some of these things, even though the psalmist probably didn't know how to think about it that way. I don't think that does any damage that we think about it as in terms of forever, in terms of eternity. After all, it's poetry. It's meant to spark our imagination. It's meant to help us think about these things in ways we wouldn't. And that's a good thing to think about. But there's a little more than that, because when it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord, we need to think about what might that mean? Well, one of the interesting things that, that I thought of when I was working on this is that there were some people who actually did dwell in the house of the Lord in ancient times, in the time that the psalm was written. Now, we don't live at church these days. Well, sometimes we think we do if we're a pastor and we spend a lot of time at the church building, but we don't live there. We really don't. But in ancient times, the, the priests did live either at the tabernacle or later at the temple. That was the place where they lived. Remember Samuel? He lived at the tabernacle, and so that's why his mother brought him there to, to the priest Eli for him to live there with them. Well, we don't have that, that concept, but Notice that the psalmist says, I will dwell. So could the psalmist also be declaring his intention of response and gratitude to the patron shepherd that because of all that the shepherd has done for him, he will dwell in the house of the Lord. He will show up every time he can. He will be a part of God's household, a part of the church, a part of the people of God. He's not going to be a lone ranger off somewhere. He didn't have any concept of that. He had the idea that he could actually be an embedded part of the people of God. He could dwell 
with God's household forever. He would spend his days living in God's house. And, and I think that's a reminder for us today. We should not take lightly our opportunity to, to spend time with the household of, of God, with the people of God. People sometimes think, and you will not be surprised to hear me say, that church is not op optional. Some people tend to think that it is. Well, I'll go if it's convenient. If I don't if I've got something else to do, I'll just skip it. That's not at all the sense of the scriptures here or other places. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, so remind yourself that this is a great opportunity for you to express gratitude and to reciprocate what the good shepherd has done by making that declaration to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the good news of Psalm 23 is it contains so many of these wonderful things that we're all familiar with, so many good reminders. And I want to encourage you in these days and other days to use the scriptures to pray, to go down through here and to remind God and thank him for his provision. Thank him that he breathes new life into you. Thank him that he leaves you, leads you in the right way to go. Thank you. Thank him that you don't have to be afraid. Thank him that he provides this wonderful hospitality for you because he gives you a feast and anoints your head with oil and gives you an overflowing cup and that one day you can dwell in the Lord's house forever. And you will. And you're not, you're not going, going anyplace and the Lord can count on you. That's the idea here. And I think that's very helpful. I think we need to, to think of that, that if the Lord is our good shepherd, then we are his client and he is our patron and we need to express that gratitude. Well, in just a few minutes, we're uh, really less than a few minutes, we're going to take a little break and we're going to readjust our focus here. And, and when we come back, I want to talk to us about the National Day of Prayer. We celebrated that this week, and I have some thoughts about that and some experiences that I want to share with you. So stay with us. We'll be right back to talk about the National Day of Prayer. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling, or worse yet, <coughs> coughing. Flu, cold, and coronaviruses are everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to reduce these threats with an invisible mask as an additional layer of protection? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs while protecting you from airborne pathogens that make us sick. America Out Loud listeners get 20% off. Use Cofix RX while in large groups, while traveling, or for any other type of high-risk situation as an additional layer of protection to help reduce your likelihood of catching a cold, the flu, or SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Right now, America Out Loud listeners get 20% off of all orders. Click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Because of COVID-19, Many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, Taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. -L. 
and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. The spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation, that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com, where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. listening to Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this program is the place that we talk about faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, or we say faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we want to help each other develop that kind of faith, that kind of confidence. And so I'm really glad to have you with us today as we continue that journey. We've talked about Psalm 23 and how it's a great great psalm of of inspiration, of encouragement, and of thanks for the Good Shepherd, and of bragging, we could say, on the Good Shepherd. And that's one of the things we need to do is to express our gratitude and our appreciation to God. And I said before we took our little break that we would come back and we'd talk about the National Day of Prayer. This past week, we celebrated or observed, however you want to think about it, the National Day of Prayer. We do this every year on the first Thursday of May. We've been observing the National Day of Prayer since 1952, and that's since before I was born, before a lot of us were born. So this is a long-established tradition in our country. It was in 1988 that President Reagan signed a law that designated the first Thursday of May as our National Day of Prayer, and so that's why it's set aside today or this year, I should say, was May 5th, Thursday, May 5th. And we've witnessed gatherings in communities all across the country. They hold prayer events, breakfasts, maybe lunches, dinners, gatherings of all kinds, sometimes inside, sometimes outside, sometimes at city halls near the flagpole, sometimes at other public places. But people all over the country pause on the National Day of Prayer to turn their minds and hearts toward God to give thanks for our country, and to ask the Lord to bless our country, because we still need his help. We will always need his help. We will always need his blessing. He has blessed us, and we need him to help us keep ourselves on track in many, many ways. And so a couple of things happened relative to the National Day of Prayer this year, and I thought it would be nice to to think about those after the fact to remind ourselves of how important this tradition is to our country and help us kind of recapture the importance of that and not let it slip away. So relative to the National Day of Prayer, something happened in our community that I never imagined would happen. I I never dared to hope it would happen. I guess you could say I just didn't have enough confidence that that this would change, but I didn't because I knew the environment and I just didn't think it would change. But something happened that I never could have imagined, but it was absolutely remarkable. So the week before the National Day of Prayer, some of us got wind of some uh, movement by our local school board. 
Now, it kind of started a few weeks before that when we heard by way of media announcements that a school board in Florida had voted in support of a resolution supporting the National Day of Prayer. Now, school boards don't typically do that, and they don't typically do that in Florida. There seems to be a certain level of resistance to supporting ideas like the National Day of Prayer. But we were all both surprised and pleased. Um, a friend of mine's organization had been working in Miami-Dade County, Florida, and the Miami-Dade County, Florida School Board passed a resolution in support of the National Day of Prayer. And we all thought that was a terrific accomplishment. We, we were astounded that that could happen. And one of my minister colleagues here in Lee County, Florida, had been working with our local school board, and he's been helping us with that uh, to a great extent. And he's been in touch with some of the school board members and encouraging them to do the very same thing, to pass a resolution in support of the National Day of Prayer. Well, it hadn't gotten any real movement over the years and no real movement that we were aware of this year until on Tuesday of last week, Tuesday, uh, two Tuesdays before the National Day of Prayer, if, if you want to know specifically when it was, we heard that one of the school board members had made a commitment to introduce a resolution in support of the National Day of Prayer, make a motion that the board pass that resolution in support of the National Day of Prayer. Well, we were all delighted and, and at the same time surprised because we never expected that would happen. Well, shortly after that, we also found out that another school board member had said privately that they were convinced and they would support that motion and they would second the motion. Now, these things are important. And just, to, just so you'll understand in your, your local area, it's important when you have an issue like this, although it's largely symbolic, it's still important that somebody on the school board, in this case, make a motion to support the National Day of Prayer. Now, once a motion is made, that's very significant because then it's up to the other members of the school board to decide whether they will second that motion. And when they're on the spot, so to speak, when they have to make a decision, then we get to find out where they stand and we find out whether somebody will support this good motion to support a resolution in, uh, regarding the National Day of Prayer. Well, now we had not only the resolution was going to be introduced by way of a motion by one board member, we had another board member committed to second it. So that brings it before the board so that now the board will vote on that resolution. And that's significant because it puts all of the board members on record relative to supporting or not supporting the National Day of Prayer. So we were really delighted that that was going to happen. We thought this is really good news because we thought that would help everybody understand where the board stands on something as important as the National Day of Prayer. So some of us attended the school board meeting on that Tuesday. It was a long meeting. They covered a lot of things, and that really isn't always unusual, but it was 9.30 at night. I left my house at 5.15 to get to the meeting, which started at 6. It was at 9.30 at night that the resolution finally came before the board. And yes, it was seconded. So now it came before the board for a vote. In Florida, when something like that happens, that means there's an opportunity for public comment, which is why a bunch of us were still in the board meeting room waiting for that at 9.30 at night. And so as soon as they allowed for public comment, about a dozen of us lined up to comment about the bill. 
we, we were only given three minutes each, but that was a, enough time for us to all make a statement in support of the National Day of Prayer resolution. And so one by one, we took our three minutes. Some of us took the whole time. Some of us didn't take the whole time. But we made our case to the school board for why they should support the National Day of Prayer. In my brief statement, I reminded the board that this was entirely appropriate for the board to do because it goes all the way back to our founding from the Declaration of Independence, where it reminds us that governments are formed in this country. In fact, the, the declaration says governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So that's, that's how they're in, introduced or that's how they're formed because governments are there among people. We form them. They get their powers from the consent of the governed. And the purpose is that they are there to secure the rights of the people. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So I said to the board, while I didn't quote all of that to them, I said to the board, it's entirely appropriate for every level of government to pass resolutions like this because it is a way that you are securing the rights of the people. I also reminded them that the person who had made the motion said that she hoped that it would be one of the things that would help students take a moment of reflection to think about important things in life. Well, and so I said to her, I just, or said to the board, I had just heard someone say the week before that they were talking about prayer and the importance of prayer. And they said that, that one of the things that they observed is that the people who pray best are the people who are the best listeners. And so I said to the board in re relation to the uh, pause for reflection, I said, I hope that we will all take time on the National Day of Prayer to hear from our creator, because when we hear from him, we will all be better. And that was pretty much what I said. I challenged them. I didn't write out a statement. I just spoke from my heart to theirs and that we would all benefit from this. And I hope they would pass it. Well, to our delight, to our surprise, really. And, and again, I, I, I'm a little chagrined that I'm surprised, but I was. The board passed the resolution in support of the National Day of Prayer by a vote of six to one one dissenting vote. And this board member said, she said, when, when they called the roll for the vote, she said, no, thank you. Well, we weren't surprised because we're familiar with this board member, but we were delighted six to one, the board supported a resolution in support of the national day of prayer. That's very good news. That's a big step in our community in the right direction. And I thought it was worth celebrating. And I hope you agree with that because we want to celebrate those kinds of wins that we have, those kinds of little victories that come along uh, from time to time that are in support of our nation's values and of our nation's ideals. And one of them is the National Day of Prayer. Another thing that we do in, in Lee County and have done for many years, haven't for the last two years for obvious reasons, but we have a community prayer breakfast. It started a long time ago. I believe it started in 1988 and has been continuous since then, except for the virus years. And there may have been one other year that for one reason or another, uh, there was some remodeling of the meeting place that, that kind of messed things up, if I remember correctly. But for almost every year, we've been meeting for a prayer breakfast in our community in Lee County, Florida, on the day, first Thursday of May, National Day of Prayer. And so this 
rolled around. They sent out invitations. We all signed up. They were holding this event in one of the minor league baseball stadiums here in Lee County. It's a large venue. Lots of people could attend. And uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting place for it to, to be held. It had never been held there before, but we went and it worked out real well. It was easy getting in, easy parking. All the stuff worked out fine. We found our seats, the program started, and I was really interested to, to know, and I guess they figured a lot of us would be, so they announced that the attendance at the prayer breakfast this year, partly because of the space available, I think, but the attendance doubled what it had usually been. So we had 2,500 people that showed up at six o'clock in the morning. That's when the breakfast began. The program began about seven, showed up early in the morning before daylight. We watched the sun come up while we're sitting there in the stadium to attend the National Day of Prayer breakfast in Lee County, Florida. It was a great event. There were county commissioners there, other public officials. There, there were a lot of pastors that participated on the program, uh, leading us in prayer, reading scripture. It was a good morning, as it always is. And one of the highlights of the morning was an address by a man named Ben Carson. You may be familiar with Dr. Ben Carson. He was a pediatric neurosurgeon, and then he served in the Trump administration. He's been a national figure for quite a while now, a very eloquent spokesperson. And so a lot of us were quite interested in hearing what Dr. Carson would have to say to us on this National Day of Prayer. I've met Dr. Carson on a couple of occasions before. I was pleased at one point to share a table with, with Dr. Carson and his wife, and they were just the most gracious people. They were not at all pretentious. We sometimes wonder about celebrities. They were just regular people, as nice as could be. We had a great conversation. I had my picture taken with him at one point. He spoke at an event, one, an organization that I work with, sponsored, and he was just absolutely uh, a prince of a guy in every way and every occasion that I've been around him. So Dr. Carson gets up to begin talking to people, and I was really interested in what he would have to say. And I want to share a little bit of what he had to say with you, because I thought it was so insightful to hear from a man who has been in so many different places and had so many different opportunities in his lifetime. But early on, as he began to speak to us, he said right up front, he says, I'm not politically correct. Well, I wasn't surprised by that. I don't think anybody was. And what he meant by that is he went on to explain, he says, I don't twist myself into pretzel shapes trying to avoid offending people. And I thought, well, I believe that, but he's not an offensive guy. I mean, I had met him. I knew him a little bit from talking to him one-on-one. -on -one, and I thought that was interesting that he would say that. And he went on to explain that political correctness opposes free speech. And he's convinced that if free speech disappears, our other freedoms are gone. And so he wanted everybody to know that he was just going to tell us what he thought, and he wasn't going to worry about being politically correct in the way he expresses it. But I have to tell you, you might disagree with him, and I'm sure there were people that disagreed with some of the things he said. I didn't find myself disagreeing with him, but I figure some people might have. But there's no question about it. He wasn't offensive in the way he said it. And, and I think he's right. We have to make sure we have the, the opportunity to speak to each other and to hear from each other. And he did that forthrightly and without being difficult, without being offensive, he just told us what he thought. And he talked about America. He talked about the great place that it is. He talked about how it's the only nation with a dream. It's a destination nation. People want to come here because it's such a great place. And uh, he's right. They do. 
he, he then talked a little bit about his, uh, his childhood and growing up. And you may have heard some of his story. I hadn't heard this part of it, but he, he said that, that he always loved medicine from his early remembrances when he was a kid. He loved medicine. He loved everything about it. And I thought that was quite kind of interesting. What causes a kid to love certain things? He said he even liked going to the doctor and he would gladly take a shot, he told us, just so he could smell the alcohol swab. And I thought that's nuts because I was a kid once and I never wanted to get a shot, but he loved everything about it. He loved everything about medicine. He said the curious thing was that when he was a kid, he was a really bad student, one of the worst. He was so bad that the other kids teased him unmercifully because he was such a bad student. He went on to say that he was really only good at one thing and he was good at getting kids kicked out of class. And so he would study the other kids and learn how to push their buttons and get them all upset. And then finally push the final button when the teacher was around. So the teacher would kick them out of class. And he seemed to enjoy that little game of his. Well, he also explained some serious parts of his life, how his mother came from rural Tennessee and extreme poverty, how she never had more than a third grade education. But he said she never made excuses and she never accepted excuses. She worked multiple jobs, many hours spent doing that. She was a single mother. She worked in the homes of wealthy people as a domestic, cleaning their houses. And while she was there, she made good use of the time and observed what made those people successful. And she concluded that they were successful because they read a lot of books and watched very little television. I thought that was an interesting observation. I also knew, and you may have heard that part of the story, and he didn't go into the details of it, but as a result of her conviction that that was important, she started making Ben and his brother read. And Ben, Dr. Carson said that through reading, he learned what success requires. And he stopped listening to people who said that he couldn't, and he started applying himself. And here he says, one of the worst students in the class, maybe the worst, student academically, that in a year and a half, he rose to the top of his class at school. Because of reading, he developed a completely different mindset, and it changed the way he approached life. And he commented on that, and he talked about the marvel of the human brain. And he said, we, we humans have such marvelous brains, we don't have to act like animals. And I thought that was pretty profound from a neurosurgeon reminding us of that. He told us about important things. He referred to Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, where he talked about how people should be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And, and we all agreed with that. He talked about the challenges that children have these days and how we need to help them. And then he told us some more about his life story, about how his mother got him on track academically. But even though he was doing well academically, by his own description, he described himself as having a terrible temper. Well, we understand kids go through things like that, but he went on to give us some illustrations about how bad his temper was. He talked about the time that a kid threw a pebble at him and he got so angry that he responded by throwing a large rock at the kid that hit the kid and broke his glasses and almost caused the kid to lose his eye. That's a temper. He told us about the incident where another kid one time wanted him to close his locker and he didn't want to close it. So he hit the kid upside the forehead. But when he hit him, it was kind of unfortunate because he had the locker padlock in his hand and he caused a three inch gash upside the kid's head. That's a temper. 
apparently was so bad that he got mad at his mother one time and almost hit her. Think about this, almost hit his mother with a hammer. He was only saved because his brother grabbed the hammer from behind and kept him from hitting his own mother with a hammer. Another time, and, and I'm not making this up. I mean, this is just hard to imagine. But another time, he tried to stab a kid with a knife. He was so mad at him. But fortunately, you know, looking back, I, I want to say providentially, he hit the kid's very large belt buckle and didn't hurt the kid. Could have been a terrible result for both of the kids, both the boy that was stabbed and for Ben Carson, who would have been in big trouble. Well, he said he realized that that his temper would end in, in ways he didn't want to end, maybe jail or reform school or maybe even dead. So he prayed. He looked in the Bible and he found a lot of verses about temper and the foolishness of being angry. And he said, God showed him, this was his words, God showed him he was angry because he was selfish. He said, everything became about me. And because of that, I got angry when it wasn't about me. But he said when God showed him that, his temper ended that day. and People couldn't believe that that happened that quick. But he said, and this was a quote. I wrote this down because I thought this was so, so well said. It wasn't just that he put his anger aside and didn't express it or something like that. No, he said he, he laid it down. He said, quote, the Lord doesn't just do a paint job. He changes us, end of quote. I thought that was really profound. That was absolutely remarkable insight. And I think that's good insight for our day. I mean, we have a lot of people that, that if they didn't know how to be angry, they wouldn't know how to have an emotion. And we need to put that stuff aside and get over that kind of stuff. Well, he went on to um, med school, had some challenges there. But again, he prayed and God showed him how to overcome those challenges. And he said, once he realized how to overcome them, med school became a snap. I thought that's a pretty big statement. Med school, a school, a snap. Not many people would say that. But he did very well. He went on to become a pediatric neurosurgeon. You probably are aware of that. He told the story, and you may have heard this story as well, about a family who brought their little boy to him with an inoperable brainstem tumor. There was no hope. Everybody agreed. They examined him. No hope. They did tests. No hope. But every time they did that, and he would talk to the family, the family would say, but the Lord sent us here to find a Christian doctor, Dr. Ben Carson. And they did a biopsy and they said, no, there's no hope. And the family would say, but the Lord, they did other tests and the family would say, but the Lord, they finally did exploratory surgery and discovered that no, they did what they could, but they couldn't do much. But the family kept saying, but what about the Lord? He sent us here. So they did another test. I believe he said it was an MRI. He thought from the MRI that he could see that maybe the tumor was outside the brain stem, not inside it. So he decided they would operate again, and they did, and he got rid of all of the tumor. And that child recovered fully and is a minister today. He went on to say, see, what God asked us to do is just the best we could do. And he lived his life doing that. He finally ended the, the, um, the, the talk by, again, referring to America and reminding us that our problems won't be solved by government. Well, I think most of us know that. And he, he went to some length to explain that, that he wasn't saying that because government is a bad thing or that government was bad. He was just simply saying that government won't be able to solve our problems because government is what it is. 
And then he went on to challenge us. And I think this is the challenge that, that we should all take deeply to heart. He, he said, do we have faith in God or do we have faith in government? And I resonated with that idea a whole lot because I've looked around in recent years and I've, I've said to a number of my friends, it's amazing to me how many people have such an irrational faith in government. We need to have faith in God. God is the one that will solve our problems personally and as a, as a nation. Goes all the way back, this idea, to the early days of our country, and you probably heard this one from Alexis de Tocqueville. He came to this country wondering what was going on to make America what it was. And he gave us this quote from his discovery. He said, quote, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the greatness and genius of America. America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great, end of quote. You know, if we want to have faith, if we want to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, we need to put our faith in God, not in government. Government has a role, has a role to play. Not many people deny that. But our faith must be in God, and our success, our greatness comes from our goodness. And if you've been struggling, and if you've been wondering if it's worth the extra effort to be good, then it is. If you struggle with temper, like Dr. Carson mentioned, then pray and ask God to deliver you from that, because you don't need to walk that way. You see, we are a country that has a lot of goodness left in it, and we need to surface that goodness and quit bashing each other and start celebrating the gifts God has given us, because it's great to be in this country, and God has given us the gift of liberty. We need to celebrate and give thanks. So go out and be good this week. We'll come back next week and talk some more, and you can tell me how good you've been. This is Pastor Rick. I'll see you then.